At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey folks, before we start, really exciting news. We now have CME available from ACRAC. That's right. You can get AMA PRA Category 1 credit for listening to ACRAC and then filling out just a quick survey question that will take you not more than about 30 seconds to a minute. Those links are at the website, ACRAC.com, in each uh, show notes, you can see right under the description, there will be a bold CME with a link. You click on that link. It's a small cost for each credit, much less than you would pay to go to a conference or get the 20 or 30 or 40 credits that you need for the year. You can do them one at a time for each episode that you listen to and get a full credit for just listening to an ACRAC episode and then filling out this quick question. This is powered by CMEify. It's using AI technology to bring the right education to the right place at the right time. And it really is great. You can do this in just a minute or less and get credit. So if you are out there looking for a way to get PRA Category 1 credit for your CME requirements, or if you're already getting it somewhere but you're already listening to ACRAC anyway and you'd like to get it from this, now you can. Every episode can get you a credit, so you can get more than 200 credits from ACRAC episodes by listening and then clicking on that link on the website at ACRAC.com. All right, now on with the show. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am really thrilled to be here today with a fantastic guest. I have with me today somebody who is really one of the seminal figures in intensive care and critical care, who has done work and research that has defined the field, especially around delirium and delirium prevention in the ICU, as well as many other things. He's a wonderful person and now an author who has published a really deeply impressive and meaningful memoir and book called Every Deep Drawn Breath, and we're going to talk about that today. It's about his career in critical care, the work he's done, and really about bringing humanity into and back to medicine and critical care specifically. I'm incredibly honored to be here today with Dr. Wes Ely. Wes, thank you so much for coming on the show. Jed, thank you so much. My privilege to be here. I hope that people can learn from the bravery of these patients and the stories that they tell us and the way they gave of themselves so that we can all become better physicians, better human beings, really. I think of it not as a medical book, but it really is a book about people in life. Yeah, that's how I read it and really enjoyed it. Um, So thank you for doing it. Um, let's start by just tell me a little bit about you and who you are and how you got where you are and what you do uh, on a day-to-day basis. Sure, sure. I'm just I'm a I'm a Southern hick who grew up in the, the Deep South. My my dad left when we were little, and so my mom raised my brother, my sister, and me in Shreveport, Louisiana. I then spent a lot of time in New Orleans, and I met my wife at in medical school at Tulane, and she was a Northern girl from New Jersey. And so we landed in the middle in North Carolina, did some training there. She's a pathologist, Kim Ely, and she runs cytopathology at Vanderbilt here. And I became a pulmonary critical care doctor. And the reason that I decided to do that was really as a boy in the deep south working as a farmer to try to earn money for our family. We didn't have any money. And the experience of working with these pickers and watching their lives and the way that they had no safety net and no voice in their own story that I felt like, gosh, I've got to do something to give back. And my dad was an engineer, and even though I didn't grow up with him, I thought, well, I'm mathy and sciencey on that end. And my mom was an English teacher and directed Shakespeare. So I, I split the middle between literature and, and science and went towards doctoring. 
Well, fantastic. And certainly I and many are glad that you did. Let's talk about um, your kind of day-to-day. How does your, what does your career look like at this point? How do you spend your days? Sure. I am a physician scientist, so I'm a tenured professor of pulmonary and critical care medicine at Vanderbilt University and the VA. And what I do is I spend time at the bedside with patients and families. I love being there with them. But I'm also the kind of physician who doesn't like it when things don't make sense. So I couldn't really just be an N of one physician, which is, I don't mean just, I mean, that's a wonderful thing to do, be a clinician, and that's a great calling. I found myself wanting, so I decided in addition to that, that I would design large randomized controlled trials and cohort studies. And I run a program at this a center at Vanderbilt called the SIBS Center, C-I-B-S, which stands for Critical Illness Brain Dysfunction and Survivorship. And the SIBS Center, we have about $35 million in NIH and VA funding, and we have about 115 people doing research in the areas, for example, in COVID, we're collecting brains from COVID people who, patients who die to try and understand the neurological manifestations of COVID and ICU survivorship generally. And we're doing randomized controlled trials. I was the chief architect with Vince Marconi of the baricitinib trials in, in, in COVID that gave us the largest survival advantage in all of COVID research thus far on top of steroids. And I just love doing studies and, and being at the bedside. So that's kind of my professional life. Yeah, well, that's great. And, you know, I remember, uh, I agree completely with what you said, which is that certainly people doing one patient at a time are doing an incredible good deed and taking great care of people and making a huge difference in lives. Uh, but I think what you said is that you can have an enormous effect with research, with studies that will help those people to do better work, to do more evidence-based work and to help maybe a wider range of patients. So we need it all. We need people translating what the research you're doing into the bedside, and we need people like you doing that research. So, Well, I think that what happened in my life was that, you know, there's nothing that I think is more important than when I'm caring for my patient and their family. That, that's it. And, and if I can help them survive, be a widget in that survival, that's great. If they're dying and we can't help them survive, then I want to be right there with them diving into that chaos of that end-of-life process. And so that, to me, is my greatest calling. But in addition to that, what I'm saying is that, is that wow, if we can get answers to questions that then affect the lives of people that I'll never meet in Argentina or Thailand or Australia or Russia, that's, that's kind of, for me, a great, a great pleasure and a gift yeah, to be part of that. Absolutely agree. So let's turn to your book, uh, Every Deep Drawn Breath. It was recommended to me by many listeners who had already uh, gotten a chance to read it, and I read it and absolutely loved it, as I said. Tell me a little bit about what made you decide to write it and what the process of writing it was like. Well, I was thinking about writing this book for about 10 years, and the reason I was carrying around a lot of guilt and shame as a physician Mainly because, and you'll, the first patient you, you meet in the book, and all the people in this book are real people, real names. They're all uh, transcribed conversations, uh, direct quotes. So nothing's made up in this book. And all their pictures are available on our website in a photo gallery, by the way, for the listeners. But um, the first patient you meet is Sarah Bollock, and she is a woman that I couldn't help survive. She dies of peripartum cardiomyopathy. And I made this decision that, wow, I want to push back against the maw of death. And so the second patient you meet is, is uh, Teresa Martin, and you can see here in my office that there's a box of her, me- of her medical records right over here, which I had to seek during the writing of the book. And she was the first patient that I ever took care of who had post-intensive care syndrome. And that was in 1990, 22 years before post-intensive care syndrome was even a term, and I did not understand what was wrong with her after she survived. And so I carried that guilt and shame around for 20 years and thought, wow, we've now figured this out. We can now measure delirium. We can measure long-term cognitive impairment. We know that these things cause dementia in patients, PTSD, depression. This PICS is a, is a world problem. It's a global public health problem. And something needs to be done in way of, of, a, of a tool created so that we can reach people who aren't just the scientists. And so what I saw was an opportunity to write a book that was a book of narrative nonfiction. That's what this is, narrative nonfiction that can bring the message into more human terms than we think of in terms of like a New England Journal paper. And that's why I wrote the book. Fantastic. And I think it does that. It really reaches people in a way that, like you said, a New England Journal article would be maybe too clinical or scientific to do. So I think that's right on. It's a very personal book. Uh, you know, you tell stories, um, and I'll ask you in a minute to maybe share a couple of, about patients, but you also tell stories about yourself, your family, even your daughter's experience in the ICU. 
Tell me, was it always clear to you from the beginning that it was going to be a very personal book, and how did that develop over time? Yeah, as I was writing this book, and I did it over a period of three years, it, um, you know, it, was, it was early mornings and, and late nights because I was working. And the more I got into it, the more I realized that if I wasn't willing to share with the reader the true honesty of what I had been through, the reader would know. And the reader is so smart that they will figure out that I'm holding back and they'll sense a dishonesty, a, a disingenuousness to the story. So I, I talked to my wife, I talked to my friends, and I said, can I write this book where I tell the whole thing about the ways that the mistakes I made and the ways that I got gray hair for worrying and these tragedies that happened in my life as a father there's this chapter in there about a, a, a very, very hard thing that occurs with my daughter. And I still, I, I'm a swimmer, so I still, 30 years later in the pool, sometimes just will scream out in agony thinking about that event, which the reader will, will come to. And I decided it was the only way to do it, was to be that open and honest about it. I even tell uh, Jed that I go to Al-Anon. And some of the people in my life whom I love the most have had problems with addiction, and one of them told me one day, you need to go to Al-Anon, which is obviously a, a spiritual program, not a religious program, but a spiritual program for people who have addiction in their life. Not like I, I myself, thank goodness, don't have that, that uh, challenge. I have many other challenges, but the Al-Anon program has been a way for me to find a way forward through suffering and through heartache towards peace. And so I share that in the book, and I just feel like that the listener deserves to know those things. Yeah, well, it makes it a much more powerful book, I think, than it would have been without it. So I'm glad that you did. Uh, I want to ask you if you can share uh, two or three stories that were really p very powerful for you, patient stories that you rediscovered as you were writing this book or that have always been a part of you as you've gone through this journey in critical care. Yeah, I'd like to, and I'll read one to you, and I'll have a front and a back end to this story. This is about, uh, I, I went off and did lung transplant pulmonology. I trained at Barnes-Jewish with Bert Truluck and... It was an amazing experience. And when I got back, they wanted me to start this lung transplant program on my own. And the first patient I ever saw that was referred for lung transplantation was Marcus Cobb. And here's the story. And there's a picture of him on the, on the website, on the photo gallery of him holding his own heart. So the listener will know that he does get his heart lung transplant. And was that website, which we'll put in the show notes, tell me what the web address is. It's, it's icudelirium.org. Great. So just icudelirium.org. And you can misspell delirium all you want because I bought a bunch of different URLs to, to redirect. Great. All right. So when I returned to North Carolina, I carried with me the hope that I could bring what I'd learned at Barnes-Jewish to my doctoring at the new heart and lung transplant clinic. My first patient, a young man about my age, came down from Cobb Holler in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains to see me about a new heart and lungs. I could have guessed this even if he hadn't told me as he was completely blue. As Marcus Cobb walked into my examining room with his wife and two small children, he smiled as if he had some secret test for me. His brown eyes were large, pleading, but I didn't return his gaze. I was drawn to his skin. It was the color of faded denim, his lips dark, purple, like a bruise. We call this cyanosis, and with his degree of blueness, I could tell that more than a third of his hemoglobin was coursing through his body without any oxygen. Marcus had Isominger syndrome. The right side of his heart was too big and was forcing used blood from his veins over to the left side of his heart and out to his body without first going through the lungs to pick up oxygen. My eyes moved to his chest. A burly guy, he started out a little confrontational. Listen, Dr. Ely, I looked up. I'm blue because I was born with holes in my heart, and I found that I had one foot in the casket ever since I was a boy, he said with a southern twang. Many all-knowing doctors have told me I'm about to die. They've all been wrong so far, but now at 32, Danita and I are wondering. And he goes on to tell me, Jed, that he doesn't want to hear this thing about him dying, but he now isn't sure, and should he get lungs, should he not, should he get a heart, should he not. And uh, what I tell in the book, which I'm going to skip just to save time, is that Marcus, as I was looking at him in the room that day, and it's at a transition point in the book when I had been distancing myself so much from patients, really trying to, to, to dive into Osler's recommendation of equanimitas, you know, equanimity. And I think I overused that asset in my early patient experiences. And what I was learning and what Marcus taught me was that I was 
cheating myself and my patients from the depths of the experience that we could have as human beings. And I think there's really nothing more powerful and invaluable, perhaps even you could call it mystical in a way, when two people achieve true human connection. And that's what Marcus did for me. He eventually gets transplanted and he goes on to live his life. He parachutes. He has an amazing experience. I got so close with Marcus and one day, years later, I was in San Diego and I'll, I'll never forget this. I was going up to give a lecture and my phone rang and I picked it up and this is the last two paragraphs of his story. As we knew what happened, all good things fade. And this is most certainly true for the tenure of organs at the whim of a stubborn immune system. Several years later, I was about to give a lecture to a few hundred physicians at a medical conference in San Diego and Danita was on the other end. Marcus is dying. He's asking for you. Without hesitation, I apologized to the meeting organizers and rushed to the airport. And I remember running with my roll-on behind me to catch a plane home. It was a particularly clear day, and from my window seat, I was watching the Grand Canyons and lakes pass beneath, praying all the while that I'd get there in time. In the cab from the Nashville airport, on my way to Vanderbilt, I called Danita to ask the room number. It's number five on the eighth floor, but hurry. At the hospital, I sped to the elevators and shot out into the hallway. As I rounded the corner through an open door, I saw a crowd. I slipped into a nearly complete circle of about seven others. They'd been waiting for me. I put my hand on Marcus's shoulder, looked him in the eyes, and talked directly to him. He was the only person in the world who mattered at that moment. It had become second nature to me by then. He looked up at me and whispered, Thank you. Then Marcus died. And it happened that fast. I mean, he was dead within 15, 20 seconds of me reaching his bed. And my mother had always been telling me when I was a, a young physician, make sure you put your hands on the shoulders of your patients and treat them as though they're the only person in the room. And, and years later, when I, when I became the doctor for Maya Angelou, which was a great privilege, the very first thing that my mother said when I called her, Maya had given me permission to tell my mom. I actually asked the permission, of course. And she said, well, I hope you put your hand on her shoulder and acted as though she was the only person in the room. She, you know, she, it wasn't she was blown away by the fact that it was Maya Angelou. To her, and that's what I'm trying to say to the listener, this is a person. And every person is a world. Every person is of infinitesimal worth. And, and if we can find our way as physicians to treat each person with that degree of dignity and value, then I think we will get rid of burnout, we'll not lose our way in our vocation, and we'll have our true north. Right, because so much of what physicianing has become is not that, right? It's sitting in front of a computer, not sitting with your hand on a patient's shoulder, and that plays a huge role in burnout. Exactly. And I, you know, I cover in, in every deep-drawn breath, which I abbreviate EDDB. Uh, we're creating an endowment for this book, by the way. It's called the EDDB Endowment. And all the money from this book, every penny from this book is going to patients and survivors. We're hiring social workers. We're hiring insurance people to help them navigate all this morass of their, their life and pick up the pieces. But uh, in EDDB, I cover burnout quite a bit and, uh, and things like PTSD in us. And I think that in COVID, when we didn't have patients and families at the bedside, I, I think it was anti-medicine. And we know that, you know, just like I said, the listener's smart. They're going to know if I hold back in the book. Well, it's in our head. Like we know when we're not practicing good medicine. And in the first couple of waves of COVID, we know that it wasn't right. And the family has got to be there with the patients. If we don't, and Rena Oddish, who wrote in Shock and I, we wrote a piece in the Washington Post about, about the fact that this is a testimonial injustice that we're committing in medicine. We're, we're, we're silencing the patients and the families, and it's not okay. I hope that in this fifth wave that we're going through right now with Delta again and now with Omicron on its way, that we can find our way back to what we know matters, you know? Absolutely. So you mentioned before PICS, which is post-intensive care syndrome, and PICS-F, which is post-intensive care syndrome for families. Tell a, a story or two about experiences you've had that really got you interested in that and, and that you, you portray very, very carefully and well in the book. Fantastic. The, the, perhaps two of the most powerful people in the book with picks are Sarah Beth Miller and uh, Richard Langford. Both of them, Richard Langford had an elective knee replacement. Sarah Beth had ARDS, so it's great because it's one's emergent, one's, one's elective. 
And Richard was a really successful human being. He had done missionary work all over the world. He worked with the World Health Organization. And after his elective knee, he had cognitive dysfunction. He couldn't remember things anymore. And his life became, he now lives with his 90-something-year-old mother. He can't carry on his life. Sarah Beth was a, a mathematician. She did Calc 5. She was uh, one of the first female engineers for AT&T. And she had to retire at the age of 52 after a, a, a six to 10 day bout of ARDS. I mean, it wasn't even like a 30 day hospital stay or anything. And she became the index patient where we learned about the dramatic drops in IQ and about her MRI findings. And so Sarah Beth's story was that she, after she got out and her life was all screwed up, she wanted to have something good in her life, so she got braces. So we couldn't do an MRI for several years because she had metal on her teeth. When she got the braces off, we finally repeated her MRI, which we had done during the hospital. And we also neurocognitively tested her. And we said, you know, Sarah Beth, your IQ is okay. It's 110, 114. And she freaked out. We were like, what, what's wrong? Like, that's, that's, a, that's a standard deviation above normal. And she said, I was always in the 140s. So she had been tested many times. And we wrote a case report. She's the subject of a, of a very powerful case report where we also then in the MRI saw that she had the brain of an 85-year-old. And her gyri and sulci were just deep and just trenches. And the book, when I tell her story about her PICS, which is really, PICS is just the acquisition of dementia, PTSD, and depression. And then neck down, it's the acquisition of motor sensory neuropathy where you can't walk and, and move around. But in the book, I talk about how her brain, what it made, my, made me think of was like a, like a garden, a beautiful garden, which is now replaced with just muddy puddles of water where just millions of neurons are gone. And how is she going to get that back? And so those patients were the ones that drove our research and they drove the science of the development of the, of the bundle, the ABCDEF bundle, which for your listeners is just a six-step safety bundle, which has 400 peer-reviewed papers behind it, 35 to 40 New England Journal, Lancet and JAMA papers, in which we know if you achieve 80% compliance with this bundle, you're saving lives. You're, um, in fact, there's, I shouldn't make a cutoff at 80, there's a dose response from 20 to 40 to 60 to 80. The further you go up in compliance, the better life-saving benefit you see, shorter stays, less ICU bounce backs, less nursing home transfers. And um, it's sad to me that in COVID, we've gone from 80% compliance on average down to 10 to 20%, which we just published a paper. So it's all gone sideways on us, and we're going to have to find our way back. Absolutely. Tell me, do we know, and you talk about this some in the book, but do we know why some people have the experience that she did where they're in the ICU, not for four, six months, but for, you know, a couple of weeks and they have this, this incredible effect on their brain. What is it that's happening in the ICU? Do we know that's causing that? Yeah. What we, what we, we know a lot, what we know more than we don't know. What we know is that the diseases that the patients are experiencing in there have a lot of thrombophilia and a lot of inflammatory, you know, tsunamis. So between both microclotting, because what this is really is, is a micro injury, not a macro injury. So in the, in, the, in the MRI of these patients, you don't see something that across the room you would acknowledge as a big stroke or a TBI or something. They're losing millions of neurons globally across their cortex, cerebrum, and especially in the frontal cortex and the hippocampus. So we know that people are experiencing... Uh, memory and executive dysfunction. And the things that are leading to it are both this absence of blood flow because of microclotting, but also the drugs that we are piling on to the patients. And the reason we know that that's part of it is that if we shut the drugs down and we cut them in half, like we did in the ABC trial, which we published in Lancet, not only do we see a four-day improvement in length of stay, hospital and ICU and hospital, but we actually see at the end of one year one of the largest survival advantages in all of medicine, which was about a 15% absolute risk reduction in death in the ICU. And these are people who are coming in with Apache scores of 27, I mean, big time illness. And we cut the sedation in half. That's the intervention. And at the time of a year later, instead of dying 45% of the time, they're dying only 30% of the time. So I think that we are piling on with an iatrogenic injury on top of that baseline thrombophilia. Yeah, almost like a second hit on top of that. Yeah, exactly. 
And is there any reason to think that uh, anticoagulation might help if if, the th- if it's uh, microclotting that's causing uh, that's causing this? I mean, do we know if patients who are on a heparin drip for you know something else uh, do better from a delirium standpoint? We don't have data to support that, but a lot of people right now, especially during COVID, are thinking about that in terms of mechanism because they're thinking about serotonin excess and and um, and the fact that it could be that patients are, who are exposed to anticoagulation could improve. And I'll tell you another one out of the left field, which has just come on my radar in the past year, is that did you know that in, in right in the middle of, of developed nations, I'll just speak for America here, I don't know about other countries, but we are having an amazing amount of niacin deficiency. And I think it has to do with, with, with food deserts. That our patients are coming in in the, in the ICU, and we are having multiple patients with undetectable niacin. And so they can have delirium and cognitive impairment, neurological disease based on that. And we're actually thinking of doing an RCT. And I'll just give the listeners this idea, if you want to go for it, of niacin to prevent acute brain dysfunction. Interesting. Well, I hope that someone you or, or someone out there does it. It would be great to see if that's a factor. So you mentioned the SIB Center uh, and the work that's doing and the fact that you're incredibly generously donating all the proceeds from this book to that center. If people out there are listening and say, you know, look, I'd like to give too, obviously they can buy your book and those proceeds will go. Is there other ways? Can people make a direct donation? And if so, how would they do that? Yeah, they absolutely can. They can, first of all, anybody can contact me. I'm on Twitter at, at Wes Ely MD, so at W-E-S-E-L-I-M-D. And, and I'll communicate to anyone anytime about that. I've left the account open so people can just DM me at will. But in addition to that, our, our, our icudelirium.org website has a donation page, and the donations can be made either directly to the science or to the EDDB endowment. So those are the only two options. And people are doing that. And we're going to take all that money, and we're not just going to benefit patients at Vanderbilt. We're, we have patients in our support groups. We have right, we're expanding our number of support groups. So we have COVID support groups, COVID, COVID spouse support groups. We have just regular ICU support groups. And we are having people come on Zoom from the Netherlands and from Thailand and from all over the United States. So, and we're serving all those people. And we want the EDDB endowment to be of service to people at any institution, by the way. So we're going to grow this and we're going to have it be in perpetuity so that we, when we have the endowment, the point is that we will hire these social workers and all these other helpers forever. Yeah. Um, that's, the, that's the goal. You know, you were talking about the issue of no sedation and, and, and cutting the sedation. We we're talking about how that might be contributing. Why don't I read just a tiny bit of this story of going to Denmark? Because it's yes. really fascinating Please do. what happened there. Um, so the, the setting was that Thomas Strom had just published this paper. It was 2012. And they asked me to come over to help him with his PhD dissertation. So in March of 2012, I stood outside a daffodil yellow cottage with a red tiled roof on a cobblestone street in Odense, Denmark, a hundred miles west of Copenhagen. Two centuries earlier, this quaint building had been the childhood home of writer Hans Christian Andersen. And as I peered through the windows, I wondered if I might be about to encounter my own modern day fairy tale. Earlier, I'd read a paper in The Lancet about a group of Danish physicians using a no-sedation protocol in their ICU patients on ventilators, and I was determined to learn if it could be true. I recall that this small Scandinavian country had played a key role in the innovation of critical care before pushing the field forward during the 1950s polio epidemic and the, epidemic, and, excuse me, and the incipients of mechanical ventilation in the 1960s. But still, no-sedation at all seemed extreme. I was prepared to expose it as a fallacy, much like the creation of the woven garments in Anderson's The Emperor's New Clothes. And I go on to describe the fact that I go in these ICUs and the people are wide awake. And I'm walking around comparing my notes from my you know, 15 years, uh, actually 20 years of being an intensive care unit doctor at the time. And while we were already starting to reduce sedation, we didn't have our patients wide awake, and they did. And it wasn't a fallacy, and it wasn't a fairy tale. They were actually wide awake on the blower on 65% and peeps of 15 to 18 and talking to their family members. And I left just completely blown away that this was absolutely a reality and thinking about how am I going to do this back in the United States. And I, I closed this chapter. The chapter is entitled Awakening Change, which I thought was acute. And I closed it with this comment. As I was leaving the ICU in Odense, Thomas Strom glanced through one of the large windows at the red rooftops and then turned to me. Our local writer, Hans Christian Andersen, was terrified of being buried alive, Wes. When he went to bed, he had a little note next to him saying, 
I'm not dead. I'm just sleeping. Then Strom laughed, and so did I. Later, as I toured dozens of ICUs in many different countries, I came to realize that much good might come from signs above patients' beds that read, I'm not dead. I'm just sedated. And for the listener, one of the reasons that I said that is that Deborah Cook, uh, you know, an icon in critical care, wrote a, a paper, a study in the New England Journal of Medicine, whereby they studied what caused physicians to essentially make people DNR and back off and, and change from cure to, co- to, to comfort measures. And one of the leading things that the doctors in this Canadian study in the New England Journal said was that when, pa- when they didn't think the patients would have a good cognitive recovery. And I don't know about you, but for me as a physician, if somebody is in a coma for multiple days, even if I did it to them, I'm thinking, well, how good could this be? And they actually looked dead. You know, um, <laughs> Thomas Petty wrote that patients look dead except for the monitors that tell me otherwise. And all this is in, is in EDDB. And I started wondering, have I committed people to dying who could have otherwise survived because I was jaded by this thing that Hans Christian Anderson was afraid of? I'm not dead, I'm just sleeping. I'm not dead, I'm just sedated. And I think that the answer to that is probably yes, I have done that to people. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's really powerful. You know, you, you make someone look dead and then even if you don't think it's tainting it, it probably is tainting the way you communicate with the family and the family's own perception and more likely that they might decide to withdraw support. I think that's really a powerful thing to consider. When you talk about the, you know, PICS and PICS F and, and obviously wanting to try to prevent this, what advice do you have for ICU providers? I mean, there's definitely intensivists out there listening. There are residents who may become intensivists fellows, what, what would you say to them if you're going to be practicing in an ICU and you want to give your patients and their families the best possible experience while they're in the ICU, what should they do? Okay, well, you know, I think that there is a simple recipe that I keep in my head now, which is way different than I did the first 20 years of being an ICU physician. And what I try and do is T, T, T and T. It's, uh, it's, it's touch first and technology second. And what happened with my life as a physician was I did, I thought that my job was about the technology. I actually thought that my life as an ICU doctor was that I had the toolboxes of putting people on the blower, the ventilator, central lines, and all of that. And back then we changed central lines and swans every third day and A lines too. So I put in thousands and thousands of these lines. But then a patient wagged her finger in my face and said, Dr. Ely, you didn't do your job. She was in her mid-30s. She was a young mother. And I said, what do you mean? She said, you didn't do your job because your job was to get me back to the life I want to live. And I am so disabled from a brain perspective and physically that I can't be a mom right now. And I was so convicted. I thought, oh my gosh, I had my job wrong. Like my job extends way past the ICU into their lives. And so what what these young intensivists can do is just think, the first thing I need to do is find out who is this person and what's their life about. And it's a simple switch of a preposition in your mind. It's not what's the matter with someone. It's what matters to someone. So if the young physician can remember, I need to know what matters to this person. And that's a simple set of questions to a family. What does she love? What's her music? What's her, what's her favorite food? Um, not that you're actually going to pl- get them that favorite food right then, but it helps you understand who is this I'm caring for. And when you know that their favorite food is Thai food and you know their favorite music is the Verve or something like that, then you start to get a picture for who am I caring for? And what you're doing is you're diving into the chaos of their life so you can take care of this entire person. And there's no way that doesn't change your doctrine. Yeah, I completely agree. And, you know, even small things like we started during COVID with our COVID patients writing on the outside of their rooms on the glass you know, my name is such and such. I am. Uh, this is what I do for a living. Mm. This is what I like to drink and eat. And this is the music I like to listen to. And just even on rounds, seeing that, seeing this and then reading it and thinking, that's right. That is actually a person in there. Makes a huge difference. Right. Yes. Oh, I love what you just said, Jed. That is just an absolutely beautiful example. And I've rounded to Hopkins before so I can picture your units and what that looks like. And, and, and you know, we're standing outside those rooms. In fact, I'll never forget rounding at Hopkins. And for the whole 45 minutes on rounds, we never went into a bed. And that happens in so many ICUs now because of COVID. 
how easy is it? I mean, we're just people. We can so easily think this is really about the computer. It's about Epic. It's about labs. And it's not. That's not why we're there. We're there to take care of an actual human being in that bed of just priceless value. And so we have, that's to me the number one thing that we have to teach ourselves to do in order to maintain the compassion and the empathy that we have, that we have to, 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 to care for a person. Yeah. I agree. And, and you talk really quite eloquently in the book about empathy for the patient and their family and how those are very tied together and how you can't separate the family from the patient without causing harm to the patient. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, folks. Pattern is a disability insurance company, and they know that you want to be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time-consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable, and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, you compare your options, and you buy risk-free. So request your quotes today at PatternLife.com. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-N-L-I-F-E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. All right, and now back to the show. I know that from my own experience, and certainly I'm sure yours too, sometimes the hardest thing for a family member to do is to be the one who has to make that decision to withdraw support if, in fact, the patient is not going to recover. And that that, I'm sure, puts them at high risk for PIX-F, having to make that decision. I bet there are things we can do to help them as they go through that. What do you recommend to people if they are going to help guide a family member through that very difficult time? Is there anything they can do to make that go better, to help support that family member as they're making that difficult decision? Yes, I think that PIX-F is a very real thing. And there's a beautiful story in Every Deep Drum Breath about Titus Lansing. He's a young four-year-old boy who got septic. And his mother, Allison, is describing what they experienced. So let's first describe this. So she, she, she goes through the sepsis and they get home. And on that first night, the boy is crying because they're changing his dressings. The sister is crying because he's getting all the attention and they're twins. And then the, the older brother is crying for they didn't even know why. And then she has Crohn's disease and she starts getting these recurrent bouts of Crohn's, getting hospitalized, which worsens the kid's situation because now she's not with her kids. And the husband, who's actually a rocket scientist in real life, has to take a leave of absence because he's got PTSD. So we have to, you know, Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, always says, begin with the end in mind. So we have to begin with the idea that that balloon-laden exit from the hospital is not a celebration without a problem on the other side of it. I mean, I'm glad we're celebrating them going home, but they have got hell to pay when they get out there. So... First, we have to just acknowledge as a, as, as a doctor, as a nurse, as a pharmacist, you know, whoever we are on the team, that we have to dive into the lives of these family members and say, tell me, what is it you do? What do you have to go home to? How are you going to get your, back, your life back on track as you also have to deal with the recovery? Because this picks is going to be a long haul here, you know, long hauler. COVID, but, but just also, this is a total marathon here. And for weeks and months, you're going to be dealing with the recovery process. I want right now to start the healing for you. So what do you need me to do for you? Um, and remember, I'll give you one last tip. The bundle is a PICS prevention tool. Why? Well, part of the PICS F is the guilt. And the guilt is driven by not being present in an interpersonal way with their loved one. So if the bundle wakes somebody up every day, reduces, cuts delirium in half, gets them out of the bed, and, the, and the, if the F, the F of the bundle, the family member is part of that process of getting them out of the bed, people say to me, should I involve the family in mobility? Oh my gosh, 
yes, that's so obvious. They have to be part of the mobility because they feel like they're doing something. Even if the person's dying and they can't take food, I tell them, put honey on a spoon. Because honey, you can't aspirate honey. It's easy to give. It's sweet, so the patient will send something. There's you know, nominal caloric value to it, but the loved one feels like they're doing something. So the loved one has to be involved, and this prevents them from getting PICSEF. Yeah, so that's really powerful. So if somebody has to be a part of making that decision to, to let a loved one go, being a part of their care at the end, giving them that gift of a taste of something sweet on their tongue, and then being being part of the end and being able to see it done peacefully and comfortably, I, I, that makes a lot of sense, that that would help prevent that guilt and prevent some of that, that risk of PICSAV. So thank you for sharing that. I think uh, early ambulation, you've mentioned a couple times, I, I think it was another thing you saw in, is it Odense, is that how yeah. you say it? Uh, you know, that was really powerful. Certainly, it's something that we talk about a lot. I had Callie Dayton on the show, who's a nurse who's very involved. In oh, she's amazing. Do- Love yeah. her. Everybody listen to her podcast, Walking Home from the ICU. Absolutely. She does an amazing job, and we spoke, uh, and it was really fun to interview her about it. So let's talk about early ambulation. Why, and you do talk about this in the book, but why isn't it done more? Why? And I can tell you, we don't do a great job of this. Why, why don't we do a better job in a lot of places of getting patients who are on the vent up and walking? Well, uh, let me use data here. Stroetz, S-T-R-O-E-T-Z, did a famous study with Martin Tobin years ago about uh, when we were still learning about spontaneous breathing trials. And let me use it as an example. They thought that you could look at a person and tell whether or not they were ready to come off the ventilator. And what Stroetz showed, and this is published in the AJRCCM, was that you can't. You can't tell if somebody can breathe on their own without actually testing them. And so that became the genesis of my spontaneous breathing trial study, which was in the New England Journal in 1996, which is part of the B of the bundle, the, you know, both SATs and SPTs, turning off sedation, turning off the ventilator. Likewise, you cannot look at a person and tell what they can do. But we all think we can. So we see somebody sitting in a bed, immobilized and perhaps delirious or even in a coma, and we think they're too sick to walk. Well, guess what? You have to wake them up and get them undelirious or wake them up and move them to get them undelirious because mobility cuts delirium in half. We know that from multiple studies in order to understand what they can do. And the other thing is that we have this high benchmark in our head. Like um, when I'm teaching my kid how to ride a bike, okay, and you have, you're a father of three daughters, beautiful, uh, beautiful daughters. And when, when you're teaching them how to ride that bike, are you disappointed when they ride it only three feet? No, you're like, oh my gosh, we're getting there. We're starting something. They, she just, Ava just rode the bike three feet, mom. And, uh, and then when she goes six feet, that's awesome. But you don't expect her to ride around the block the first time. So when somebody gets out of the bed and they walk a foot, that's a total success. And what we do, we're such damn perfectionists and overachievers. We think that's some sort of failure, but it's not. And so just getting them out of the bed, getting them vertical, walking one foot to the chair and then collapsing in the neuro chair, that's a total win. And we've got to re- reprogram our brains to see what is a win and what is not. Yep. The, the loser is just leaving them in the bed. Yep, yep. And it's it's so, you know, there's so much inertia. It's so much easier for the for the providers to leave a patient in bed, right? Yes. Than to get them up and be careful with the vent and the tube and moving it and getting it over there. But you know, work like yours really goes to show that it, it has major impact. And if we're not doing that, then we're we're harming patients. Yeah, you know, there's this. There's a, uh, one of the, I, I have made a point of, by the way, if people are willing to leave Amazon or Goodreads reviews of this book on, on the internet, it will help draw other people in and will make more money for the patients and survivors. But I, I, I don't read them myself because it gets my headspace in the wrong direction. But somebody sent me one that gave, that gave it a bad review. And what the nurse said was, this guy's living in a dream world. He's making this stuff up. And I thought to myself, wow, I so wish I could meet that person and take them into our unit and show them the reality of what it does for a person and their family when we enter into that dream world, which is not a dream world. It's true. It's real. And um, there's, this, there's this place in the book, you know, when, when, when Gordon Moore, who was the founder of Intel, the billionaire, went into his ICU experience and, and, and got delirious, he wasn't have the, fa- the family was not allowed. And he got really upset about it. And he gave the money to the Society of Critical Care Medicine, the SCCM, to do the ICU Liberation Collaborative, which, which is the famous program that proved that the ABC DEF bundle saved lives. We studied 16,000 people and proved that this made a huge difference. Okay, 
But the study right before that, the multicenter study before that, was by Marianne Barnes-Daly, a, a great nurse. And she tells in Every Deep Drawn Breath this story where she goes and, and then she says, I have these nurses in a room. And I was telling him, this is the cool new stuff. We're, we got to do it. And they were all like, what do you mean? Like, how can we get them out of the bed? How can we walk them? And I said, well, how did you do it? How did you teach them, Marianne? She goes, I told him about patient stories. I used the power of the human story. And I had them in tears. They were crying, saying, we didn't know. And she said, I didn't know. But we're breaking their brains. And that's why, in every deep-drawn breath, these patient stories will move us. And in your own ICU, use a single patient to drive the others to see that we need to change. Yeah. Yeah, and you talk eloquently about your trip to Odensa and how that you just said uh, here in our conversation that, you know, you thought you were going to walk in and prove it, it couldn't be real. So much like that commenter of your book who said, this is a fairy tale, it can't be real. And yet you saw it and that convinced you. And hopefully people read your book and, and hear the stories and think, okay, this can be real. And if not, maybe they go see your ICU or Callie's ICU and see it happening and say, okay, this is happening. And, you know... As I said earlier, begin with the end in mind. Listen to what Alden Huslid, a patient in the store in the, in the Every Deep Drum Breath, says. Alden Huslid found his way to our support group after reading about delirium in a magazine. Before that, he had spent four years looking for answers, trying to understand what had happened to him after his critical illness. He told me, and I think this is so profound, I wish my right hand were cut off so that people could see immediately that there's something wrong with me. Instead, they look at me funny and wonder what my problem is. Alden was an investment banker on Wall Street, but hasn't worked since his hospital discharge. He says he doesn't know who he is anymore. Quote, the wheel I need to move forward is the wheel that's actually missing. I mean, that's what's happening in the lives of these people. How can we afford not to change? Yeah, I think that's right on. You know, what happens, I think, a lot, and I bet there are a lot of providers out there who, who face this, is you have a patient and you try to lighten their sedation. And the report is that they get combative or they're a danger. They, they are going to, you know, the, the nurse is, is worried they're going to pull out their lines or their breathing tube. And so we deepen the sedation again. And maybe then there's reluctance to try again because the thought is, yes, I know we're supposed to do this lightening of sedation every day, this sedation vacation every day, but what if we do that and they pull out their line or their tubes? And so this prevents a lot of patients from even having a sedation vacation, let alone getting their sedation turned down or off. How do we address that? Oh, I have such an answer for this. I'm so glad you brought it up because right now in ICUs all over the world, that's exactly the thing that people are grappling with. They're thinking, well, I have to be safe. Well, guess what? The data show, and I'm going to tell you the data, the data show that it is way more unsafe to keep the patient sedated than it is to stop, stop the sedation. So in our, in our clinical trial, the ABC trial in Lancet, 2007 or 8, Gerard is the first author, I'm the senior author, Ely E.W., for people who want to pull it. We found that the daily wake-up, the SAT, spontaneous awakening trial, did increase self-extubation, but not reintubation. And so what was happening was that the patients were waking up and saying, well, I'm ready, you don't think I'm ready, and I'm right, and you're wrong, and they were, they were correct. And so when they self-extubated, they didn't need to go back on the, on the blower. And what a wake-up call that was for me. And the funny thing was that during the study, and you, you know, these are the kind of stories behind the story that make science fun. During the study, the nurses were saying to me, Dr. Ely, you know this isn't working, right? And I said, what do you mean? And they said, well, every time we turn the sedation off, we have to turn it back on and then turn it back up again. And I thought, oh my gosh, it's not working. But then at the end of the day, we analyzed it, and we had a 50% reduction in morphine, propofol, and benzos. Well, what were the nurses seeing then? How was it that they thought that they were always turning it back on? And once we went back and did qualitative interviews, what we found out was that what people were doing is they remember the one anecdote where things went haywire. But they forget the 20 patients where you just turn it off and nothing happens except that gradually they wake up. And the way that a wake-up works is you turn it off, and unless something dangerous like tachycardia or self-extubation occurs, you leave the drug off, and they get to just stay that way until the drug wears off. Because sometimes with propofol, it'll take a couple of days. Well, that ended up improving survival, four-day difference in ICU hospital length of stay, and then we've built that into all of the data into the, into the bundle. And it, there is no question that this, if you want to be safer for people, turn this stuff off every day. Yeah. 
Oh, I did not know, and I absolutely love that fact about the reintubation. So more self-extubations, but not more reintubations. That is fantastic. It's evidence-based. It, uh, that is uh, that is such a powerful piece of data. Let me ask you this: if if we do have to sedate a patient, do we think propofol is better than benzodiazepines? Do we think Presidex is better than either? What if you had to sedate? What would you use? Okay, well, let me say that at the very beginning of, of mechanical ventilation. We're trying to stabilize the patient. During the arc of critical illness, which I'm holding my hands up and you can see an arc here, we, we do need, you know, we have rapid sequence intubation. We need some sedation right there at the very beginning. What I'm saying is if that occurs on Monday, the error in thinking is that, oh, it helped us on Monday, therefore it's needed on Tuesday. Yep. Okay, that's, that's the problem that we fall into. And what we have to think of is, of is this. What was needed on Monday was helpful for a few hours and as soon as we reach the top of stabilization of this arc, we need to move the back end of critical illness over to that period of time. So instead of having the back end, which is when we remove things, like on day three or four, we need to remove that back end to the front of the arc, which is at the end of day one. And immediately start asking ourselves, And if, if, if I think we've learned anything in critical care in the past 20 years, probably the most under-recognized evidence-based lesson is that Keeping things on past when they're needed is dangerous and kills people. And sedation is the best example of something that ends up taking people's lives or at least causing picks and ruining their, messing up their life. So at the beginning, we have to have it. Now, if we do have to have it for a period of 24 hours, 36 hours, whatever that might be, at least turn it off every day. That's the first thing. What you're going to use um, in, in over 30 randomized controlled trials using the GABAergic benzos, not a single time, to my knowledge, show me if I'm wrong, not a single time have the benzos won against any comparator. And I published this in Chest a few years back. There could be something similar but I don't, since then, but I don't think so. The only reason that benzos were reawoken in COVID was because of an initial propofol shortage and because Helm's paper in the New England said that they were treating in Germany 80% of people with benzos. And people were like, oh, I guess this is what you do in COVID. Well, no. That was just what they did. It didn't mean that we all had to do it. So I would say avoid benzos, number one. Two, whether you use propofol or dex, we published our men's two study in the New England Journal. That was a landmark trial. Chris Hughes is the first author. Pratik Pandurapandi, the co-director of the SIP Center, is the senior author, and I'm, I'm right before that. Um, we proved that propofol and dex, if you are practicing a light sedation approach, are the same. Which means that if you're shooting for RASes of minus one, minus two, and not keeping them at minus four, minus five, uh, the, the alpha two agonist DEX or the GABAergic short-acting PROPE are the same. But that isn't true, I think, if you're using PROPE for five, six days when PROPE becomes a benzo. Yep. And PROPE does become a benzo. But if you use it short, it's equal to, to, to DEX. Yeah, and I would say that in my experience, it's rare that we use propofol and keep them at a RAS of zero to negative one. It's so easy with propofol to go a little further and have them at negative four, negative five, which is easier for the nurse in the room, right? And so it's you don't pay attention or you know you have the advantage of that in terms of ease of care and, and you get over in that, that range and now you're using a lot more propofol whereas Presidex isn't good or dexmedetomidine is not going to get you RAS of negative five. So you don't have that temptation. Yeah, I never thought of this before but I have said before that these things are weapons and they can injure people and essentially it's, um, it's easier to use a less injurious weapon. Like a like a like a like a twenty two is safer than a semi automatic. Yeah. And the problem with GABAs is that with GABAergics is they they much more quickly become dangerous to patients without us intending it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think you know even though that trial that you you mentioned the men's two trial did show that I, I think again we have to be careful. I I still think if I can use Presidex, if dexmedetomidine, and I keep saying Presidex, but obviously that's that's not the um, generic name. If we use dexmedetomidine, it feels safer because we don't have that temptation to go too far. So, you know, if you have that option and it's working in a patient, it, it seems to make sense. And there's also analgo sedation, which is kind of what Strom was strutting over there in Denmark, was analgo sedation is just using one drug for two purposes. So using fentanyl only, you know, and not even having a GABA or an alpha-2, that's something else that can, that can be very helpful, and especially if people have surgical incisions or something. Absolutely. 
Let me ask you, obviously you have talked in the book and, and had a lot of experience with post-ICU clinics, bringing patients back, trying to help them with support groups and seeing them yourself in clinic. Is that something we should be doing more often? Is that something that helps uh, patients? I absolutely think that this needs to become usual care. I think that, that, that um, Carla uh, Steven and Jim Jackson are the two people who pioneered this here at Vanderbilt. In the book, I talk all about Richard Griffiths and Christina Jones, who started the first ICU clinic at a pub in, uh, in, in, in Liverpool, actually, over beer and chips. And there's a beautiful story about Christina Jones and, and Richard Griffiths starting this in the book. There's a lot of history in, this, in every deep drawn breath. I think that in 2021, it is the right thing to do to have a place for survivors of critical illness to go to be with people who know what they went through, who can figure out what happened in their life. Kind of like Alden Hoosley when I said he, for four years he traveled around trying to figure out what had happened to him. Well, what if he had gone to our ICU clinic and we had just said, here's what happened to you. Now, let's just make this very clear. You have PICS. You have a cognitive impairment, a PTSD, a depression, and this is what we see. We're sorry it happened, and we should have been better at preventing it, but we're going to help you get through this. And it's kind of like in long COVID right now. I wrote a piece in Stat News about the silencing of long COVID patients. And what I think is happening in long COVID is that we don't understand as scientists why it is that 100 days after their illness, their immune system and their autonomic nervous system get all screwed up. But it does in too many people, you know, not the majority, but maybe a third or something. And what we do is we just feel uncomfortable with lack of knowledge. And so we tell them they don't have a problem or something. And they don't meet their criteria for POTS, P-O-T-S. But they know they have a problem. And so we need to say instead to them, just like we do for our PICS patients, you know what? You're suffering. I don't fully understand how you're suffering, but I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to stay with you. And that's actually the compassionate statement that is in every deep drawn breath that we know takes about 40 seconds to make a compassionate connection with a human being. And we can teach this to each other. We can teach that compassion should be an explicit part, like taking a social history. There should be a compassionate statement included in our evaluations that makes them realize I'm devoted to you and I'm in a covenant with you. I have, I am making a promise to you that I'm, going to stay with you during this process, even when I don't know what's going on. Yeah, that's so important. Let me ask you, uh, Wes, as we head towards uh, wrapping up here, what is the future? Uh, what are you excited about that uh, we can look forward to in the future in critical care? I'm really excited about the fact that, you know, people said, aren't you depressed at what happened in COVID? No, I, I'm excited. Yeah, I mean, it's sad what happened in COVID, no question, but I'm excited to learn from it. I'm excited to take on the back end of COVID the fact that now when somebody comes into the hospital and they say, my best friend lives in Salt Lake and they can't make it here, I can say, guess what? I learned in COVID. And by the way, he speaks a different language than me. Well, guess what? We're going to put you on a FaceTime with a translator and you're going to have a communication with your best friend even when they can't come. What a gift. You know, that sort of thing. And then also the notion that we've now been through a period of anti-medicine when families weren't there. I'm excited to rebuild the bundle to where we were prior to COVID, but now we have the, the experience of we can lose this. You know, when you lose something precious in your life, whether it's a human being or some, you know, the ability to play the guitar. There's a beautiful story in this book about two musicians. You know, we're in Nashville, so it's Music City. And there's two musicians who lost their love of music. They can no longer even play or listen to music. Imagine, this was just stripped from their brain for some reason in picks. And when you lose something dear, then you realize how important it, it was to you. Well, we lost something during COVID, which was the, the human connection that we had in medicine. And I don't ever want to live anymore as a physician without that. So I'm, I think we have to look forward to, to rebuild this. We have the toolbox. It's the A to F bundle. We have the data, you know, 400 peer reviewed manuscripts. We know this works. And my fellows are writing to me right now and saying, we're going back to what we know works. And I want to see the resurrection of this. Yeah. I, I think that'll be really important. And, and to realize that 
the same stuff as you say that worked before is going to work now. There's no reason to think it wouldn't, and it's just as important, if not more so, in the in the epidemic that we're facing than it was before. Exactly. Wes, you end in, in the end of your book, you talk about how you once thought that ventilators or vasopressors were the most important part of intensive care. And now, if you ask that question, you might answer figs or honey on a spoon or a bar of music. I think that's such a powerful thought. And I want to ask you to just end by saying a little bit about what that means to you. Yeah, you know, I'm gray haired now. I'm 58. And I never thought that I was going to change so much in my 50s. I kind of thought I had this down. Um, I thought, you know, I know the science. I can do the procedures. This is my vocation. And what I have found, Jed, in the past 10 years is that a bunch of the assets that I developed as a young physician, I was overusing them and they became liabilities for me. And what I mean specifically is that these talents that I thought I had, which were my entire toolbox of being a doctor, were keeping me at an arm's length from the richest part of my profession, which is to say that kneeling down, holding a hand, and I'll end with a very powerful story, which which happened to me a few weeks ago, which was a, a COVID patient saying to me, crying, Dr. Ely, as she's puffing away on her high flow nasal cannula and about to get intubated later that day, which she did. Dr. Ely, can I tell you why I didn't get vaccinated? And, and saying, first of all, Dr. Ely, would you please tell my family I was wrong? Tell them to get vaccinated. I was wrong. Miss Smith, I'm making up her name here. Miss Smith, you know, it's your story. Tell me. And she, I knelt down looked her in the eyes, held her in the hand. She said, I didn't get vaccinated because the man on the TV said they were trying to depopulate society of people like me. Wow. Okay, so she's a victim of misinformation, and that makes us mad, and that's a different story in a different social context that we have to address the misinformation. But in that moment with her, she revealed to me something on her heart that she wanted me to know. And when I get to take care of a human being, you mentioned figs or honey on a spoon, I want to know them in full color, not in a depersonalized gray gray colors, but I want to know who they are in full color, so as to say, the entire person. And I want to know, do you have a spiritual value you want me to be aware of? Are you an atheist or an agnostic? And what makes life meaningful to you? And this, to me, when you enter into a period of suffering, like is happening for all of our patients in the ICU, you have an intimate connection and a gift of diving into a situation that we never earned. And if we can utilize that time to help people find meaning and purpose, even in the midst of suffering, to me that is a way greater payback, payoff for them and for us. And um, that's what the FIGS story is about. I'll let the reader get to it, but the FIGS is this beautiful thing that happened during COVID. And um, I, I don't want to live the old way that I did as a physician now. I, I can't go back. Yeah, and, and I think that's exactly right. And I'm sure people out there feel the same way. And your book is a really wonderful way to hear stories about that, as well as discover some tools to help get there. And in the end of your book, uh, kind of after the, the finish, you then do provide tools, tools for families, tools for providers to use to think about this and to try to address it. So I highly encourage people to get the book, read it. It is really, really an important part of learning about being a critical care doctor and learning how to do this thing as well as we possibly can. So Wes, thank you for writing it. Thank you for taking the time to talk about it today. I want to turn to the last portion of our show where we make random recommendations, something that you would recommend to the audience that they check out, something that uh, you may uh, think would be fun for them to see. Sure. You know, I um, I mentioned Kaylee Dalton, Kaylee Dayton earlier about her uh, podcast, and I think that we need to allow the non-physicians to teach us as doctors from their perspective. And so that's one podcast that's a great example. I think I'm learning a lot from uh, geriatricians recently. Geriatricians, the Jerry Powell podcast is another one. So for the listeners, these are two great podcasts to to listen to. If you want to know a a novel off the cuff, um, there's a great story by Neville Shute called A Town Like Alice. It's a beautiful, beautiful novel that starts in London and ends, it goes through Malaysia and Australia. It's It's called A Town Like Alice. It's an absolutely beautiful story. Um, 
for those of you who have not, have not read Abraham Verghese's book, My Own Country, that's an absolute must read. And then on the social justice front, um, I think uh, something that really woke my eyes uh, to the social injustices in the United States, and there's, a, there's an awful lot of social justice in this book, by the way, with Maya Angelou and things about segregation of blood between blacks and whites and, and such. But the, the books that I would read on that front would be The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, um, Slavery by Another Name, which is an absolutely great historical book, and then couple those two with Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. And those three books, to me, woke me up and made me think as a physician, I want to lead a better life as a doctor where I try and fight social injustice within the context of medicine. Yeah, well, thanks, Wes. Uh, Slavery by Another Name was an incredible... I, I haven't read the other ones, though I will. Uh, thank you for the recommendation. But Slavery by Another Name I did read, and that was incredibly powerful. You learn things you just had no idea about. Um, I will say that, I, and I think it's appropriate because I actually got this recommendation from a patient in the ICU who was reading uh, a book uh, that I didn't recognize, and I asked the patient about it, and it was a, one of the Cormoran Strike novels. So these are J.K. Rowling, who, of course, wrote Harry Potter, under a pseudonym uh, of Robert Galbraith, started writing this other series of detective novels, um, and the, the detective is Cormoran Strike. And uh, the patient was reading one, recommended them. I started reading them, and, and I'm now on the final one, though she intends to publish more. I think I'm on the fifth of, of currently five. And uh, just a total break from, uh, from anything real. It's uh, obviously they're novels, but they're really well-written and fun. So if you're looking for a fun detective novel to read, check out the Corman Strike books by uh, Robert Galbraith, who is actually J.K. Rowling. That's a great tip, Jed. Thank you so much. I wrote it down, and I'm going to go to those. Awesome. Well, Wes, thank you again. Really wonderful to sit down and talk to you. My privilege. fan of the show you can follow us we're on twitter we are on facebook we are on reddit and we are on instagram i'm at jay Walpaw on twitter and we're at Akrak podcast and you can find us on all those other platforms as well if you are a fan of the show please consider going to apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating it really helps others find the show if you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Ryan Okonski is our social media manager. And Drs. Kimia Kashkuli and April Liu are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And MIDI can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.